If you have your Bible, join me in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5. This month, we are looking at the family. Isn't it interesting? Before you are married, before you have kids, how much you know about being married and how much you know about having kids. And then once you're married and once you have kids, you learn how much you don't know about being married and about having kids. I tell people all the time, the one thing I know for sure about kids is it doesn't always work. And now it has been the greatest example in my life, and we're not really looking at this much this morning, but now I have two that are the exact same age, and they came into the world a minute apart. And what works on this one does not work on this one, and what works on this one does not work on this one. And so I have learned what you know you don't really know. And so we learn many times through going through things. We learn from others. But at the end, what we don't know should not be scary to us. It shouldn't keep us from doing those things that we do know. Oftentimes in life, we want the application and the simple do this and it will work step. When really, the other side is generally where we need to spend our time. Follow this principle, adapt this principle to the application... And the principle always works. In Scripture, we see principles about marriage. We see principles about children. That when applied, they always work. Though the application may change and may vary. The principle stays true. Last week, we began looking at a general principle for the home. As defined in Scripture. And the general principle there in the home is simply... That as men, we have a responsibility for the spiritual direction of our home. And so as a husband, as the leader in the home, it is my responsibility to set about a spiritual direction in my home. And to come to Scripture, to look at those principles, and to help establish them. Now, that only works if my wife is on board. And that's kind of where we're going to look at a little bit today. But I have to set a direction. And I have to learn, look, don't focus on the now. Focus on forever, not the for now. And we talked last week about how if I will look at the fact that one day I will stand before God, and one of the things I will be accountable for God is the way my family walks with Him in the sense of what I taught them. And part of that will be my wife standing before God. And when she stands before God, I want to have had a part in her being able to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I want that for my children. And I am a firm believer. Again, this is a a week or two from now. I am a firm believer. If I do my job right, I am not just training my children. I am training my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. And so we have to have that mindset of forever, not for now. We come to Ephesians chapter 5 today, and Ephesians chapter 5 is one of the greatest passages that we have on marriage and on the home and establishing a godly marriage. But I want us to look at the whole of Ephesians 5 before we come to the last half of it and get to the marriage context, because I believe the first part will help us understand how the second part comes to be. Join me in verse 1. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. Now just pause. The principle here, Ephesians 5, verse 1, marriage is going to start here in 20 verses. But in verse 1, you're never getting anywhere in the godliness of life, if you will, without beginning as a follower of Jesus Christ. It is why it is so imperative that 
the two who are coming together, who are getting married, are two followers of Christ. It's interesting. For years, really for even decades, there have been surveys and studies done about marriage. And the statistics have ranged somewhere around 50% of all marriages end in divorce. And then second marriages, that number jumps from 50% up to about 66. And third marriages, it jumps up to about 75%. I have an aunt who, she said, by the time you get it to as many marriages as I've had, you don't do weddings anymore. You just show up at the courthouse. And I will tell you, when she got to her third marriage, she finally realized this principle. And now she recognizes the problem was not the other person all along. The problem was she was not a follower of Christ the way that she should have been. And when she got married for the third time, her and her husband became followers of Christ and they faithfully followed him and it made a difference in their marriage. But as statistics have gone, they've said, well, that's the, the whole of America. But then in the church, it's the same. It's 50% of all marriages in the church don't last. Well, over years, they've now started doing a little bit more of a deep dive into that statistic. And when they begin to look at it and look at those who are actually faithful followers of Christ, those who actually regularly attend, those that are surrendered to the teaching of the will of God, that number drops dramatically. Now you're starting to fall down in a much lower number, really down around the 15 to 20% range. And then if you go a step further and you look at young people who followed the principles of marriage before they got married, meaning they did exactly what Scripture said about maintaining their purity before they got married, that statistic now drops down to somewhere arguably 1% to 3%. And some people will even argue that it's less than 1% if both people followed the principles of Scripture before they were married. My point being that even research now is bringing verse 1 to light. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. If we will be followers of God, then when we get to verse 21, 22, 23, the marriage is changed because we've been followers of God to start with. So as we begin, we're beginning to think about this. We're beginning to say, okay, how am I going to have in my home a good godly marriage? How am I going to seek this out? The first thing we want to do is focus on the fact that we've got to seek the Lord. We've got to make it so that seeking the Lord is the primary aspect of yes as a father, but yes in the marriage. Continue on, verse 2. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering, a sacrifice to God and a sweet savor. The idea here is, look, have a sacrificial love as a characteristic of your life. And if you don't have this as a follower of Christ, a sacrificial love you're never going to be able to be the type of husband, the type of wife that you need to be. Look, if you will, verse 8. For you were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. So there was a time for all of us, when we were not born again. In other words, there was a time in our life when we were not followers of Christ. We hadn't been saved. But at the moment of our salvation, the Bible tells us, when I trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior, the Holy Spirit indwells me. Now there's a difference. Before I had my old sinful nature. Now I have both. Now I have my sin nature and I have my spiritual life through the Holy Spirit of God in me. 
So now I have this battle going on. Before I didn't have this battle. But now I have this battle, but in me there is darkness still in me. There is sinfulness in me. But I have the Holy Spirit who is light. And so now I have a choice to make. I was in darkness and I had no choice. Now I have a choice. Am I going to walk in darkness or am I going to walk in light? Be a follower of God, have a sacrificial love, and walk in the light that you now live under. Continuing down, skip to verse 14. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Such a great picture here. In the middle of this, Paul said, look, be followers. He's encouraging the believers. He's challenging them. He, he's giving them this motivation. Then he says, all right, now, look, wake up. You're dead in Christ. You think you're good. You think you're there. You're listening to me, but you're not hearing me. Wake up already. Stop going through your life in darkness. Stop going through your life without sacrificial love. Stop going through your life dead. And then he goes on to help us understand how to do that. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. You live in a day and age in which what is going around you is evil. It is absolutely true that even coming to the context here at the end of Ephesians, that the day and age in which we live regarding marriage is evil. The truth is, if you look throughout America now at the divorce statistics as a whole, divorce is actually on the decline. And it has been on the decline for quite some time now. And it continues, and it was kind of baby steps, and it's actually taken some dramatic steps, like 18% less common than it used to be. The reason being is living together has now increased by about 43%. So now people aren't getting divorced because they never got married. They're just living together. So, so the definition now has begun to erode. And God defines marriage, and God defines marriage between a man and a woman, and that the two shall leave their mother and father, and they shall become one flesh. And when God defines that, he now has established it, and the world keeps trying to change that definition. And so, literally, we are now in a day in which we have to redeem the time because that which around us is evil, even in regard specifically to marriage. But we have to redeem the time because the days are evil, not as fools. The word there, walk circumspectly. It's the idea of to walk and to look where you put your foot so that every step is on sure and solid ground, so that you're not walking on something that is unstable. Have you ever gone up a mountain and you begin to go up a mountain? I was out in Arizona years ago and we decided there was a mountain right behind the camp where I was staying and it was about 2,000 feet in elevation just straight behind the camp. Now the mountain was actually part of a little mountain range there that had at one point, probably about 2,000 years ago, give or take, had been one giant mountain. And it was a volcano, and it had erupted, and there was now lava rock all over, and so it had basically blown the top out of the mountain. And so now you had peaks, but they all formed the outer rim of what used to be one giant mountain. So it's really kind of impressive. But we're standing there, and, and there's 2,000 feet of mountain, just boom, right there. And there's this path. 
that just kind of winds back and forth that all the little people hike up to get up to the top and there's a little you know uh, station up top where you can get up and you can look for wildfires and things and me and a buddy were going but I don't want to do that that's too easy let's go that way so we did so we just set up. Now, the great thing about lava rock, if you've never been on it, it's not like sandstone where you step and it kind of crumbles and it goes. But you don't know that at first. So you're out there as an East Coast boy. I'm out there and I start going. And, and you're walking up steep inclines, but your shoes never slip because everything is so porous that your shoes just grab hold of it. Well, before long, you start catching on to this. And you're now jumping from rock to rock and just landing and not even worried about it because everything is so solid. Well, we're going up. And so I'm just not even paying attention anymore, you know, and I'm just kind of jumping around. And I go, and I get myself in a jam so that I'm basically on like a cliff face and I'm now on a ledge and there's nowhere to go. And I've managed to climb to this spot without any issue, but I'm now about 15, 20 feet up and getting down is really not a good option. And the next ledge is up above me just a few feet. And so, not a few feet, a couple feet. I can't jump that high. But it, it was definitely within reach of jumping up and grabbing. So this isn't a big deal. So I jump up, I grab the ledge, pull myself up. And when I pull myself up, gratefully, the inhabitant of this ledge was not there. But it was very obvious I had found a mountain lion's den. Because here were bones all piled in here. There was dung all over everywhere. There was fur around it. And I'm going, um i got to find another way out from here. Now, I've had a buddy who went up the same mountain. He did the same thing, except when he came up, the mountain lion was there. And, and so you get there and you go, ooh, ooh. And so I kind of made my way back down and I managed to land on the ledge. And again, it, it's so solid when you hit your feet, just grip. And I worked my way around and we got to the top. Well, we get all the way up to the top and now it was amazing. It was like, I don't know, 90 degrees at the base. And by the time we got to the top, there was snow on the mountain still. And so we get up there and we go, now we got to get down. And I'm going, I know this. I can't get down the way I came up. So we come to a wash in the mountain. And we come to a place where two mountains come together and there's all of this loose gravel in there. And I thought, well, let's go down that way. That looks like fun. And so here's the difference. Walking circumspectly is looking for the place where I can put my foot and it grips and it grabs and I'm climbing up. When I'm coming down, I'm not worried about it. So there's all this loose rock. And honestly, all we did is we just jumped. And you would jump and you would hit it and you would slide. And you'd slide for 20, 30 feet. Just all this rock just sliding with you. And it's all going down the mountain. And then you'd kind of catch and then you'd find another spot. And you'd jump again and just whoosh. And we, man, coming down is so much better than going up. Let me just tell you. And you're just sliding down and you're going. And that's the idea of kind of being foolish. Because sooner or later, all that rock's got to go somewhere. And we managed to get off before we had any real issues. But the idea is you jump in without paying much attention to what you're doing in life, or you watch every step to make sure you're going up instead of going down. Don't be fools. Redeem your time. Buy it back. Walk watching where you put every single step. Don't fall because if you drift, if you jump, you're going the way of a sinful, deceitful world. So we, we begin, and we go, okay, now this is the stage that he's setting for us. Look, if you will, verse 18. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And the word there in the Greek has the idea of be ye being filled. So it's a continuous action. Don't let alcohol control you. 
Let the Holy Spirit of God control you. Just like you can become inebriated and out of control and your mind doesn't work because the alcohol has control, let the Spirit of God have control over you. Follow me. Have a sacrificial love. Watch every step that you're taking and allow the Spirit of God to help you take those steps. Continue on. Verse 19. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. If I go through life and I work on me and I seek the Lord and I begin to speak to myself in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and I get myself under the control of the Holy Spirit of God, now, go to verse 21, Submit yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. You can't have the right kind of marriage if you have not sought the Lord to start with. You can't build your marriage the way you're supposed to if you're not seeking the Lord. Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now here's where it gets key. In a marriage, both of you have to seek the Lord. But each must individually grow in the Lord together. Are you with me? Each has to do it, but you got to do it together. When we go through life, it is important that as couples who say, I want to be a follower of Christ, I'm going to have sacrificial love, I am going to be spirit-led because I'm watching where I'm walking. I am then going to speak to myself in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, make a melody unto the Lord. I'm going to have a heart that is right with God, and I'm going to come to my spouse now, and I'm going to submit myself one to another. And, and as we go through the passage, we'll see that there's different roles defined. And, and there's some leadership assigned to husbands and a marriage, but it only works if you are spiritually filled individuals who are seeking the Lord together. Every person in here, everybody watching us online, we all have sin natures. And if we allow our sin nature to reign, it will affect our marriage dramatically. But if we will be spirit-filled, it will affect our marriage dramatically. Now, here's what happens. Here's the tendency. So we get into it. We say, okay, I I'm going to grow spiritually. And of course, if I'm growing spiritually, I can see how much I'm growing. But I can also see how much you're not growing. Now, obviously, if you're at that point, you're really not growing. But you, you tend to think that. And we all have pride and we get in our flesh. And so we think that we're a little more spiritual than we really are. And then we see our spouse do something that we are sure is not spiritual. So, because they're not listening to the Holy Spirit of God, we decide to be their Holy Spirit. And so we then, in turn, help them to understand why what they're doing is not spiritual. I promise you this. You are not the Holy Spirit of God. You cannot do as good a job as the Holy Spirit of God can do. In fact, if you try to be your spouse's Holy Spirit, you are not being led by the Spirit. We have to learn that in a marriage, that if I'm seeking the Lord, when I'm seeking the Lord, I want to do it individually, but then I want to help my spouse to seek the Lord, but to allow the Spirit of God to work in their life, just like I need the Spirit of God to work in my life. 
And if I try to be one who then corrects and changes and directs my spouse, instantly now we've got a problem. The difference is this. So, so let me give you a little agricultural illustration here. The difference is the difference between being a farmer and being a rancher. Okay, a farmer plants in the ground and recognizes that I put the seed in the ground and now it is up to God for that to grow. Now, if you've got your little raised bed in your backyard, you can water it enough to keep it growing, but it can rain too much and kill your crops. It can rain too little and kill your crops. You can have too much sun, you can have too little sun. These problems are not problems I can fix. These are problems God can fix. So what I recognize is a farmer plants the seed and allows God to do the growing. But he cultivates. He goes out and he pulls out the things that get in the way. And he tills up the ground to keep it so that the Holy Spirit can work. My responsibility in my marriage, my wife's responsibility in a marriage, is to help keep the things out that won't allow growth. A rancher... He drives his cattle. He forces them. He pushes them. If I try to push my marriage, it's not going to work. But if I will allow God to do his part and I cultivate, I put care into and try to remove obstacles, that's the difference. So we go into marriage and we say, look, submitting yourselves one to another i got to seek the Lord first. I, I've got to have that heart that says, God, I want you first. And then I begin to come to my spouse and I submit, allowing God to be the Holy Spirit and not me. And I begin then to seek my wife. So we seek each other. So we seek the Lord first, then we seek each other. Seeking each other is that push in which we pursue. Look there at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. So the picture is great. I told you last week that as a father, I recognize in many ways my children's definition of God will be formed by me. And that's a scary thing. Equally, it is true that my children's understanding of the church will be defined in many ways by my wife. And by my relationship to my wife. And so as I seek my wife the way that Christ seeks the church, I have set an example now for my children, but I have followed the example in Scripture, and now that's the way the Spirit leads. The Spirit's going to lead me in the way that Christ lived. And so the way Christ seeks the church is the way that I am to seek my wife. So in a marriage, we have to learn to seek each other other. Now, there are natural obstacles to cultivating a marriage. The biggest of those obstacles, make no mistake, is me in my marriage. It's myself. Self always gets in the way because we all have our own wants and our own desires. Guys, how many of you have ever thought, it's December, there are Hallmark Christmas movies, woo! Never happened. And my wife has the t-shirt. Literally. I'm different in that I have never had any desire to watch a Hallmark movie. Because let's be honest, there's 87 of them and they're all the same. She does. So I recognize that there is a difference here. 
that's okay that there is a difference. But at the end, I have to have a heart that says, I don't want my way all the time. I don't want self to get in the way. I want to seek her. And so in seeking her, what that means is, is i got to look at some of the things that I want to do, and I have to push them aside, and I have to set them back because self gets in the way. Anyone who has children knows children can get in the way of a marriage, meaning kids get busy, and life gets busy. And if you have especially little ones, it's hard to get time when they're not around. We joke about, you know, the Valentine's Day on the 13th, and we say, hey, if you want a break from the kids, drop them off here and you get away for a few minutes. Honestly, if you have little ones, you know that it can be hard to have time alone when you have little ones. Uh, for Kara and I right now, we finally get to talk somewhere around 10.30 at o'clock at night, something like that, 10.30, 11 o'clock. And, and at that point, who wants to talk? And, and so you recognize that there is just a constant busyness that kids can bring. But in the midst of that, your children need to see you seeking each other. So don't let kids, don't let work, oh, how we take extra shifts and extra time, and that time is stealing away from our families just for more money. Recreation can get in the way. If you have too much to do in a day that is not from the Lord, learn to seek each other in the way that we can most effectively apply this principle is to seek to serve each other. So I'm seeking the Lord with all of my heart. As I seek the Lord, I now have a responsibility to begin to seek after my wife. And I begin to work on my marriage. Join me, verse 24. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. And the wife, see that she reverence her husband. The, the idea here is there's this mutual submission that has to occur. And wives, they show respect to their husbands. They show love to their husbands. Husbands show that... that abiding love that chases and pursues and seeks to help. And when we serve each other, then it naturally motivates that love in us to come out of us. Take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Everybody knows this verse, whether you know it word for word or not. You certainly know this principle. You were taught it from the time you were a child. In Matthew chapter 7, we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount has so many different aspects involving our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. If you come to verse 12, this is kind of the, the Mount Everest of the passage, if you will. This is the culmination of so much in our interpersonal relationships on earth. It is true for anyone. It is certainly then true in a marriage. Join me in verse 12. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them... 
for this is the law and the prophets. Now we're going to run through this very quickly here. I want to just examine this verse in light of your marriage. All things whatsoever. All things whatsoever. So the golden rule here, if you want your marriage, you want to seek each other, you want to seek to serve, then here's how you do it. You start off with all things whatsoever. Whatsoever it is. So when you begin to look at this, that means there are no exceptions. There are no exceptions in my relationship with my wife that I don't need to look at and to say, okay, is this something that is going to help my relationship if when it's done and I do it the way that she would want, that it will make my relationship better? There are no exceptions. Oh, well, I'll just tell you, my wife and I, we have a great relationship as long as she doesn't mess with my golf game. Your golf game's bad anyway. She don't need to mess with it, okay? So, so look at it and recognize how silly that is. You see it all the time. It happens in the world around us in which people will seek after something that is harmful to their marriage. It is there, but it is sacred to them. And if you bring it up, oh, no, 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 that doesn't get in the way. There are no exceptions. You need to be able to look at everything in your life. There are no excuses. Whoa, 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 whoa. But, but if I do this, then I'm letting them win. All of us have that sin nature. All of us look at situations and go, yeah, but if I let her get that, then I'm letting her win. And I'm not letting her win because I'm going to win. Are you really? There are no exceptions, there are no excuses, and there are no exemptions. You don't get out of it because of some history and some baggage. When you go into a marriage and a husband and wife come into that marriage and they come in with certain expectations, those will be confronted. There's no doubt about it. But when they come in with those expectations and they go, I'm not changing this, that this has now become a problem. Because if you're both seeking the Lord, the this is not wrong. But if I come to something, I'm not going to come into it as a fool. I'm going to come into it as wise. I'm going to look circumspectly. You go, well, what's wrong with? Oh, please. That's got to be way in your past. That's a childhood question. When we're adults, we come to a place with what's wise about this. And if it ain't wise, it needs to go. And we look at it and we say, okay, what is it that I can do in this situation? All things whatsoever. All things whatsoever you would that men would do unto you. So now you begin to look at all of these things. And in any situation, there are certain questions you now need to begin to ask. Would I want to know? In this situation, would I want to know that? There are certain things that my wife would want to know that I don't need to know. Meaning there are details and things that she may need to know that I don't need to know. And so in that, you come to it and you look at it and you go, okay, in this situation with what's going on, would my wife want to know? Whatever it is. And then if she does, I need to make sure. No exceptions, no excuses, no exemptions. I need to let her know. There are things in life that we don't tell each other, people in general. And you say, oh, well, husband and wife have to tell each other everything. I don't believe that. I just don't believe that. There are things that I don't tell my wife. And you go, really? Well, there are certain things she could care less about that I don't tell her. I mean, she doesn't care anything about the fact that Steph Curry was wearing Kobe Bryant's jersey last night while he was sitting on the bench. You care, though, don't you? 
Now, see, there are certain things she just don't care about. But there are things that I just don't tell her. Look, the things that Christian people will say to their pastor about his wife and his children are not godly. There are things that people say to me that I just go, really? How do you, do you think you're ever going to win that? Do you think I'm going to go, oh, I'm going to choose you over my wife? That's the silliest thing in the world. Oh, you know what? I'm going to pick you over my kids. Who do you think you are? It, it, honestly, you'd be amazed. You'd be amazed. I could write a book. There are things I don't tell my wife. She doesn't need to know that. And I'm sure there are things that people say to her that she doesn't tell me. I don't need to know. It's okay. Now, if she needs to know, I let her know. If I need to know, she lets me know. But there are things that we'll tell. Look, you are an unwise parent if you feel like your kids need to know everything. I'm just going to tell you that right off the bat. Your kids don't need to know everything that's going on. When we come to a situation in our homes, specifically in our marriages, you look at something and say, do they need to know? And if they do, would I want to know? How would I want to know? How would I want to get that information? Would I want to get that information through a text message? Would I want to get that information through a phone call? How would I want to, or would I rather have that information in person? There are things that we have to talk about, and they need to be, once the kids are in bed, we can talk about it in person. There are things that sometimes they can be let known through a simple text message. Would I want to know? How would I want to know it? And then, how would I want this to be handled? How would I want this situation to be handled? If it's a disagreement, do I come into the disagreement with an understanding of how my spouse would want it to be handled? Now, look, guys, I hope some of you are with me, and I'm not the only one. I learned early on in my marriage that there are times when Karen and I won't agree on something, and I will try to logically get her to my conclusion. And I realize logic doesn't work. She's not following. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that this makes sense. I feel like... And so if I'm trying to make an argument based on logic, I lose every single time because it doesn't make sense. It, it's not the way her mind works. So to try and handle it that way doesn't work. It, it just doesn't work. So you have to learn and you say, okay, how would I want this to be handled? Well, because I want it to be done logically doesn't mean she does. So in that situation, when I say, how would I, if I'm her, how would I want it to be handled? And so I come to her in a way that helps her to understand. Kara works much better in pictures than she does in logic. So I can give her measurements. Yeah, it, it's this big, this will fit this big. We can put it three feet from here, it'll be fine. Means nothing. Do you know how many times I have been in Lowe's or Home Depot and I have laid tile out on the floor? Like big chunks, because you can't tell from one piece. So you have, and I have to lay out the pattern of how it's going to look before we do any work in the house, because she needs to see it. And you can say, oh, well, man, I can just picture it. Well, it doesn't matter for me how I want to see it at that moment. I want it to be the way that it works for her. And in your marriage, when you come to a situation, you have to understand it and present it in such a way that you're seeking each other. It's not that I'm trying to get my way. I want her to have her way. I want her to see it. And so she does the same for me. And so you begin to get that understanding to see Ye would that men should do to you. All things whatsoever, no exceptions. Ye would that men should do to you. How we treat others should be motivated not by how we expect others to treat us, but how we would want to be treated. There are times when we expect people to treat us badly, and so we tend to respond in kind before it ever happened. 
we should treat in the way that we would want to be treated. We should go above and beyond. Almost all religions have a golden rule, but all of them do it in a negative. What you wouldn't want people to do unto you, don't do unto them. Jesus takes it a step further. He says, what you would want someone to do. I'll give you a quick illustration, terrible illustration, but you'll understand the point. You're walking your dog, and your dog uses the bathroom in somebody's yard. You clean up after your dog. That's your responsibility. That's what you're supposed to do. I wouldn't want someone to leave it there, so I won't leave it there, and I will clean up. That's Confucius. Jesus says you're walking along and someone else's dog left a mess in somebody's yard. And you say, if somebody had left that in my yard, I would want it cleaned up. And you clean up that dog's mess that's not your dog's for someone else. When I bring a mindset into my marriage that says I'm not going to wait for something to happen, I'm going to proactively seek to do something for my spouse that I know they would want done. Instead of waiting and saying, well, I wouldn't want to have to pick that up, so. We get to that level and we begin to seek out, what can I do to help? Anything that I can do. Then we come to the place where, do ye even so to them? There must be action. There must be action associated with it. All things whatsoever you would, that men would do unto you, do ye. Get active in your marriage. I'm going to run through some very quickly here. They'll just fly by on the screen. Do it personally. When you do something for your spouse, let it be something that you do. Do it personally. Do it positively. <sighs> you ever been guilty of that one, guys? Hey, can you put this together? Yeah, I'll do it. Do it positively. Do it pleasantly. Have a good attitude. Bring excitement to it. Be prompt. Do it privately. Don't let it be that you're doing it for show. Do it plentifully. Do it often. Do it abundantly. Do it passionately. There are things that I know that my wife enjoys, that I think through, I do for her, and I do it as often as I can. There are things that don't matter to her. Valentine's Day is coming up. My wife could honestly care less if I get her flowers. And the reality is, and I think this would be true, she could confirm this for me, they're already dead when you get them. Now it's just a matter of time before they look really dead. And so you put them in a vase, and they last for a couple of days, and then you get into the... Am I going to hurt his feelings by throwing them away 24 hours after he got them for me? Or do I need to wait a couple more days? And then it's like leaves are starting to wilt and, and she's trying to be kind and hold on, but she can't stand them being there because they're already starting to wilt and she wants to throw them away. So, so that's kind of where she gets when I buy her flowers. So I don't buy her flowers very often. Now, about a month ago, we were at the store, me and the kids. I thought it would be good for the kids to see us do something for mom, so we bought her flowers, and they lasted for like a day. I, they were almost dead that night. They were terrible. Now, on the other hand, she does love sugar. And so I go to the store, and almost any time I go to the store, I come back with some type of little Debbie cakes. A Dove chocolate is high on the list. Donut sticks were last week. If I stop in for bread, they have those big cinnamon buns with all the white icing on top of them. And so these things, they translate. Honestly, I could care less. I have never in my life thought, oh, a donut stick. I didn't even know they were called donut sticks for the longest time. I didn't know what those nasty things were. Some of you are going, what's a donut stick? Yeah, good for you. I don't ever want the little Debbie cakes. Okay, sure, they're there. I mean, I can eat them, but I, never have I been sitting on the couch and heard them calling me from the pantry. Okay, this doesn't happen in my world. It does in hers. 
So if I'm going to do all things whatsoever that I would, then I think about what she wants, and I energetically go after doing that for her. In a marriage, when you change from energetically trying to get your spouse to do what you want to energetically trying to do for your spouse what they want, that's when the door revolver has changed now. That's when the direction has changed. That's when you have gone now from seeking self to seeking each other. It's easy. Look, we learn how to push buttons. We we know, and not necessarily in a bad way, but in a good way. We learn how to do those things to elicit a response that we want, to get an action that we want. But if you want a marriage that is going to be a good, godly, sweet marriage, that's going to defy statistics, then what you do is you come into it seeking the Lord. You allow the Holy Spirit of God to lead you, and you follow the biblical principle of the golden rule, where you just go, okay, what can I do for them? Instead of, what can I do to get them to do something for me? And then, the end of that verse, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the summation of the whole idea of the first and second commandments. That we seek God with all of our heart, we love our neighbor as ourselves. You come to this as you will seek to do for others what you would have them do for you. You are fulfilling the law and the prophets. And if I come to my marriage and I say, I'm going to have a spirit-filled marriage, but I'm not seeking to do for my spouse what I know they would want, I'm lying to myself. My marriage isn't spirit-filled. It's self-filled. But I can disguise myself as the spirit real quick in my own mind. You see, both of these go together. You must seek both, the Lord and your spouse. And this goes both ways. So, husbands, I, I believe that the spiritual temperature of your home is your responsibility. But I believe the emotional temperature in the home is the wife's responsibility. And she sets that tone regardless. But when both of you are seeking with everything you have, the Lord, and you are seeking each other, it just takes care of itself. So the application, it it may not involve donut sticks for you, but the principle is the same. You seek all things. There are no exceptions. There's nothing in my life I won't give up. There's nothing that I won't set aside for my wife. And it has to go both ways. And it has to be, okay, what can I do today to help make my wife's day better? To help please her, to help make her happy. Now look, she can't find her joy in me. She has to find her joy in the Lord. I recognize that. But I still seek out my part which is to do all things whatsoever I would that she would do unto me that I do unto her. Hey, are you seeking the Lord? Are you seeking your spouse? We put them both together, and they really become one thing.